0: we're spending this time here today we have a very powerful show coming right up with two outstanding authors our first guest today is dr william harris and he is here to talk to us about his new book vanishing bone now vanishing bone takes readers on a detective adventure in contemporary medical science disease is rarely well observed revealed and eliminated in one lifetime Dr. Harris is here today to share with us exactly that. So welcome to the show, Dr. William Harris. Uh, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Harris. My goodness. I mean, your book, I, I couldn't put it down, and for a medical, you know, a book that goes over a medical disease and has a lot of scientific information in it, it was a very easy read for someone who's not in the medical community.
1: Well, one of my aims was to make it as uh, easy to understand as possible. And although we aren't speaking science, uh, it's easy to provide the, uh, the limited specific amount of information that someone needs to understand the concepts, the problem that we were faced with, and then how we solved it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you definitely are a pioneer in your field, and I'm so glad that we're going to be talking about your book here today. Why don't we start with? I I know, you know, I like to know, and and I know everyone does as well. Is like kind of what started you on this path? You know, first getting into medicine, and then kind of researching, you know, total, you know, what's causing issues with total hip replacements. Well,
1: that's it's an interesting and somewhat unusual story. Uh, the key factor was that I had such great admiration for my father who was also a physician and I really loved the the amount of love that he had of being a physician and so uh, in third grade we had to decide what we wanted to do you know that's often a third grade project and uh, I decided at that time that I wanted to be a doctor and never looked back uh when it came to choosing, within medicine, what to do, uh, I found orthopedics to be uh, extraordinarily stimulating. Uh, and that had an interesting feature to it also. My dad was in World War One in France, and, and uh, as part of his job he had a motorcycle. And he used to tell us wonderful stories about the motorcycle that he had in France, and my brother and I begged him for a motorcycle. (laughs) He knew better than to do that, so one day he said, Come on, Bill, let's go to the hospital. And he took me out on a Sunday to see a patient who had been in a motorcycle accident. The idea was to establish the dangers of motorcycles. But instead, in the operating room, I saw what an orthopedic surgeon did, and I saw how the hand worked, and I saw how injuries were managed and made better. And and I was fascinated by that and stayed in that fascination ever since.
0: Well, it's always so nice to talk to people who are passionate about what they do, and it's easy to see... That's something that you inherited from your father, and you continue that legacy. Indeed. Wow, oh, how beautiful! Well, and so I know that we're talking today about the vanishing—excuse oh, me—the vanishing bone that um, is really kind of this disease that a lot of people don't even
1: know about that's caused by hip replacement. Yes, it's really interesting in that while we were doing a lot of good for a lot of people by replacing a severely damaged hip joint, we were inadvertently also inserting into the body uh, a particle generation generator. That is something that actually made tiny particles from the wear that occurred in the joint. And, and the body's reaction to those particles It was not so much rejection, but rather a defense mechanism to try and get rid of foreign particles. And that defense mechanism ultimately began to eat away the surrounding bone.
0: Mm. Well, and how was that discovered?
1: Uh, It was uh, very surprising. What happened was, uh, for me, the first patient came from... San Francisco to see me because the people in San Francisco couldn't understand the nature of his problem. His prosthesis had come loose seven years after his total hit, and the reason it had come loose was that the surrounding bone had progressively been eaten away. I had never seen anything like this before except the similarities with certain cancers which can destroy bone. And so I thought at first it had to be a cancer. But when we examined the tissue in a biopsy, it was not cancer at all, and it was a strange combination of a cell with a curious name called a macrophage, and we had no idea why they were there nor how they made the bone go away. So it was a complete mystery. And uh, I was surprised that I had not heard about this from anybody before. And we had a hard time finding other people around the world who had seen the same thing. But eventually we were able to see that other people were experiencing this same problem. And now we knew we had to somehow find out the nature of this disease and figure out
0: something to do about it, to get rid of it. Yeah, and definitely new approaches. You know, and in your book, you talk about a lady named Gina who, um, you know, you came up with this brilliant way of, of treating her because she had um, a, a little bit of a different issue where um, it had to do with her, I'll pull this right up here. Her um, bones, um, her hips, kind of got dislocated from birth at, at birth, and so I was found it so fascinating that you developed uh, just this this procedure where you went in and you were able to use the the socket of the femur to use for grafting.
1: Yes, uh, this is a a separate issue from Mm -hmm. the bone disease that we've been talking about, but there were other challenges as well, and one of them was uh, there's a group of patients, almost all women, who are born who have the hip joint out of the socket, it's not in the socket, and uh, this was another severe problem that no one had been able to solve. And with the lip replacement, we were able to do some creative surgery and design some new forms of uh, components of pieces to go into a hip that had been completely dislocated, and we were able to solve her problem as well. And now it's a commonplace operation around the world.
0: And it's from what you developed, you know, kind of going forward. Which I, I know, I'm kind of skipping around there. But I was so excited when I read that story. I'm like, gosh, that's great, because, yes. you know, yeah, you know, I, I know a couple people that have had those issues, you know, from birth. And so it's kind of nice to know that they have. There's a solution for them. Uh, yes,
1: indeed, and, and that was one of the uh, the most rewarding parts of my career, and that is. Uh, if you could look at a difficult problem that had never been solved before, and find a way to make it work and find a solution, uh, that's really rewarding.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and so back to um, you know the the bone loss with. What was it that you were seeing, aside from the cells and the patients that you were seeing, that um, really started you on your research? Was it just the continuous flow of people coming in with the same issue?
1: Yes. uh, At at first we thought it was a rare disease, uh, and then as time went by, we found out that more and more people had it. In fact, this problem got worse with time, after the surgery. In other words, they're very rare before five years after the total hip surgery, much more common at 10 and even more at 15 years. So that the longer we went with more and more patients having total hip replacement, the more common the problem became. And finally, uh, at its peak, at its very worst, it afflicted a million people around the world. And it was the most common cause of failure of a total hip replacement and the most common cause of a reoperation for failure. And the reoperations were exceedingly difficult because the bone that you would ordinarily use for a total hip operation was very often severely compromised or completely absent.
0: And it doesn't leave you much material to work
1: with when you're
0: trying to... So how did you you overcome that?
1: Well, the first clue on what was going on, because this was a disease that had never occurred before in the history of mankind, the first clue came from a German orthopedic surgeon who felt that it might be the tiny particles of the bone cement. In the early days, we used a grouting material or a cement that you would actually put into the bone when it was about like a putty. And as it hardened in about 10 minutes, it absolutely rigidly fixed the new pieces of the total hip to the skeleton. And he advanced the idea that tiny particles of the bone cement were the cause, were what attracted the macrophages uh that proved to be correct but it also proved to be incomplete by that i mean uh because we wanted to get rid of the cement as the cause of this disease we developed new forms of total hip replacement implants that did not require cement we set it up so the bone would grow directly into them the patient's own bone would grow into the Components into the pieces and fix the pieces in the skeleton that way. Mm. The surprise came when, again, we were the first to identify the fact that this same disease could occur even if no cement was used. So now we had this more severe problem because we knew that it could occur if you used bone cement, but now we knew that it could occur even without cement. And that led us to understand that the wear of the plastic that we were using to replace the joint cartilage could also call for the macrophages, the body's defense system, to come and see if they could get rid of the, the uh, small pieces of of plastic. Well, it turns out that they couldn't, but as they continued to do what those cells are trained to do, it eventually led to the bone destruction and the bone resorption. And so now we had a much broader problem. We had to find some way to do the operation without bone cement and to make a plastic Which didn't wear.
0: Hmm. Well, it seems that as soon as you would find like one piece of the puzzle, you know, something else would pop up that would be like, okay, well, it's not the plastic, and you know, kind of looking to see what it is that keeps causing these issues within the
1: patients. Well, that is really true. There are many hurdles to overcome and many twists and turns in the complex problem of trying to understand the true nature of this uh, problem. And it turns out that uh, if you uh, insert deeply in the body something that wears and generates tiny particles, the body is going to react and react adversely and wind up destroying the bone.
0: You've mm. played such an important part in eliminating this disease. What are some of the other things to consider?
1: Well, the, the, it, the process was initially a medical detective story, trying mm-hmm. to sort out what the nature of this disease was. And it wasn't like cancer, and it wasn't like infection, and it wasn't like uh, A vascular problem, it wasn't like uh, a muscle problem. Uh, And so the first part was trying to uh, determine the uh, type of disease we were dealing with. When it became clear that the thing causing the bone loss was where the particles, was generation of particles, where of the plastic it then became necessary to shift to a different kind of thought process. Now the question was, what can we use in the body that isn't going to wear? Uh, In automobile engines, for example, you add uh, oil, you add lubricant, but you can't do that in the body. And so we had to now shift into innovation, into creating something new and make a new material for the articulation, for the place where the ball rubs against the socket that did not wear. And that took us into a lot of new areas that we had never worked on and never uh, had thought about. But ultimately we were able to create an idea, a hypothesis, that said let's see if we would... uh, create cross links. Now, what that means is that the plastic that we were using to replace the cartilage uh, that was all worn out in the joint, that plastic is extremely long and extremely thin. Uh, that is to say the molecules of that material are like spaghetti, very long and very thin. But strangely enough, in examining uh this material after it had been used in the body, we found that the actual effect of walking, the very fact that you were walking for a long period of time, changed the orientation, changed the arrangement of the molecules. Well, that said, perhaps if we can keep the molecules from moving to a new position, we could stop the wear and we were able to do that. We did that by adding energy, by putting electron beams through the material and attaching one of the long strands to the next one. And that's a link from one to the other, or if you do it to a lot of them, it's called cross-linking. And so we attached one strand of the polyethylene to the next strand. It couldn't change its position, it couldn't move, in the body, uh, and then we tested it in a a hip simulator, a machine that replicates about what the hip does, and found that indeed that reduced the wear.
0: Wow. How long did some of this research, you know, this part that we're talking about right now, how long did that research take
1: to develop that? This is a fascinating part of the story because these are really difficult problems and they take a lot of time. It was 30 years before we had really understood the nature of the disease, and it then took us 10 years longer to invent the new material and get it passed by the Food and Drug Administration and get it manufactured so that it could be used in people. And then We needed to know that in fact it succeeded in people, because even though your laboratory experiments look very promising, it's not until you actually use it in people that you know with certainty that it's going to work. And we've been using this now for 18 years. There are probably seven million people around the world who are walking on this material, and there has not been a single re-operation because of this disease since we started using the new material.
0: Wow. That's going to make you feel so good because, you know, especially with as passionate as you are about, you know, medicine, you know, to be able to help people to a point where they come in and they have the surgery once and it's not something that they need to come back and have another surgery for later it must make you really feel
1: good. Well, yes, you know, in that uh, sort of, The motto that uh, we're excited about is that if we can leave medicine better than we found it, then then we've done something worthwhile. From the patient's point of view, now, many, many patients are reluctant to say most patients or all patients, but many, many patients never need a second operation.
0: Well, that's good news. And do you still see patients coming in that have had total hip replacements that are having the, the previous issues?
1: Yes, but the, there the are two groups for which this is still a problem. There are some patients who had the old plastic, uh, let's say 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and they're still subject uh, late in life to this same bone destruction. Uh, there's another group of patients, uh, an alternative to cross-linked polyethylene, uh, an alternative was to make the total hips completely out of metal. The term used was metal-on-metal metal total hip replacement. And it turns out that they did not do well at all and uh, had a high incidence of failure. And those, some of those patients are still having similar problems. Well, hmm.
0: uh, and that's that's unfortunate. But when they come to you, what type of solutions are available to them? Because they've had bone loss, and they're dealing with a um, you know a replacement that's um, no longer being used. Well,
1: one of the uh, uh, fortunate aspects is that has grown uh, wider in dealing with the problems of bone loss. Uh, Very inventive people have developed new types of implants and new techniques for dealing with the severe cases of bone loss. So it's still a positive outlook to identify the problem uh, if it's the and metal, and then see if it's not possible to help those people substantially by another major operation. But the the, uh, optimum circumstance is the one that I described before, that if in fact you can do the operation without using bone cement and with cross-linked polyethylene, then the chances are that most people are never going to have to have a second operation.
0: Oh, that's, that's great news for many people and you know and I, I personally am going to thank you with all the research that you've done because as I you know get up in my years and if I need to have a hip replacement you've made science so much better that I'm not going to have the issues that um, our previous generation had uh, is that
1: really the key that was all right uh, and that's the most uh, satisfying portion of the entire saga of the medical detective story and then the innovation. Yeah, we don't
0: want to give away too much of the medical detective story because people need to pick up their own vanishing bone because it is a fabulous and fascinating read. As you could tell since I had to quickly talk with you about the Gina story, I'm like, I know some people that have these kind of things and, and what a brilliant thought process to kind of bring something that's totally new and going, gosh, you know what? What if we tried it this way? You know, what if we, you know, we're dealing with these different issues, and you really have to be like a detective to figure all this stuff out.
1: Yes, uh, that's
0: the challenge and also the excitement. <laughs> well, and so with what's going on with medicine now. And you've kind of shared a little bit that there's been so much that's happened. You know, what are some of the things that you're seeing that you're really excited about when it comes to this kind of area?
1: Well, yeah, it's really interesting that uh, total hip replacement has done such a marvelous job for so many people, but in the early days, it had a lot of serious problems. And it's fascinating to look back over my career because I did surgery before there was total hip hip surgery, before there was total hip surgery. And every one of the major complications has been very effectively reduced. Sometimes not quite to zero, but very, very low incidence. So now it's much safer than it used to be. But on the horizon, one of the things that remains a low incidence but serious problem is infection. And now there's some very exciting work being done that aims at putting antibiotics into the cross polyethylene. If we can get that to work well, that should reduce the incidence of infection. And then there's more work that we might be able to put pain medicine in the cross-linked polyethylene, and if we can get that to work out well, then the comfort will be much better than it is now. So, there are lots of interesting things underway at this time that will continue to make total hip surgery, total knee surgery, total shoulder surgery, total elbow surgery, total ankle surgery, to make all of those things even more effective than they are today.
0: Wow. And so, just not affecting the hips, we're talking about just about every, every joint you can imagine in the body this, this could impact.
1: Yes. These, these same problems have affected total knees and total uh, elbows, total shoulders. Uh, they've all had this problem of bone loss. The book talks about uh, the hips, but it was a, mm-hmm. a generalized problem of total joint replacement
0: as well. Wow. So, where do you go from here, Dr. Harris? I mean, you've uh, kind of conquered one of the world's, you know, most, um, you know, one of the most unseen diseases, you call it the stealth disease, and you've been able to figure that out. What's next on the horizon for you?
1: You know, what I think I may do is uh, go to the top of the mountain and sit down. <laughs> Take a break, right? <laughs>
0: After, After doing all that, my goodness, my goodness. Well, and so, um, Dr. Harris, where can our um, listeners? I know your book's available at all major retailers. You know, where can our listeners connect with you? Do you have a website that they can follow? Yes, uh,
1: uh, the uh, the website is uh, my name, which is William H. Harris, all one word. Uh, uh, at uh, net.
2: Oh,
0: perfect. We will we'll have that link here so people can connect with you as well and, and learn more about the great work that you're doing, you know, especially since you're going to go and sit on the mountain and take a break. So, and where are your book's going to be at, and they can uh, connect with you there. So, like is, you know, Dr. Harris, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today
1: a great pleasure for
0: me to talk with you. It has been such an honor. We are going to pause here for a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages.
2: recognized and award-winning author Judy Goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking. Working with people from every walk of life, her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be, no matter what the challenge is. Born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision, she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge. Teaching beyond conventional wisdom, her work is described as life-changing. Visit JudyGoodman.com. That's JudyGoodman.com. had the sense that your thoughts might actually be doing something? Ancient secrets of manifesting have been masterfully revealed in the award-winning book, Manifesting 123, by Ken Elliott. For the first time, the author's experiences and stories in this book describe exactly how your thoughts can create anything. You've been doing this all your life, but it's never been fully explained for you until now. Visit Manifesting123.com for more information today. Manifesting123.com the highly acclaimed and newly released book, *The Hand*, Part Two, by Lynn Van Prag Gratton, describes the journey between a psychic medium and a family who lost a son. Messages from Beyond Eternity's Gate is of love and healing. For more information, visit www.lynvaprag-gratton.com. That's www.lynvaprag-gratton.com. There are nearly two million Americans living with amputation. Many live right here in San Antonio. Becoming an amputee can be scary, frustrating, isolating, but there's no reason to feel alone. The San Antonio Amputee Foundation is here to help support you and guide you toward resources such as home and car modifications and even prosthetic limbs. For more information or to make a donation, visit saamputee.org. We'll help you live a full, active life, one step at a time. San Antonio Amputee Foundation. Healing limbs, hearts, and souls.
0: to Moments with Mary Ann. I'm so delighted to be introducing our next guest, author Michael P. Daly, and he's here today to talk to us about his new book, Bobby Blue Jacket, The Tribe, The Joint, and The Tulsa Underworld. Now his book illuminates neglected history of American crime, identity, and politics in the 20th century. And it's an incredible true story of a man who went from queer thief to prison journalist to Native American activist. So let's welcome to the show Michael.
3: Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you here Michael and my goodness, what a fabulous read this book is. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well I know we were just chatting a little bit ago and it's such a brilliant piece of literary work. How long did it take for this to for you to develop this book and do the research for it?
3: Yeah, so it took about uh, six years, although the kind of the first year that I worked on it, or nine months or so working on it, I didn't even know I was writing a book about the, uh, the subject, uh, Mr. Bobby Blue Jacket. Uh, it had originally come to be that I was uh, researching a, uh, another book, a book of photography called Tulsa, uh, by a man named Larry Clark. that was published in 1971, and is a, uh, a very harsh and intimate depiction of... Uh, the kind of drug subculture in Tulsa in the '60s, and then related to that, other kind of uh, you know thieves and uh, kind of criminal subculture. And uh, through looking into that book, um, I had access to some audio recordings made by uh, Larry Clark at the time. And on those recordings, it's two kind of petty thieves talking to each other, and uh, one complaining that he couldn't get bonded out of jail. The other one says, "Well, why don't you talk to Mister Bottom Blue Jacket?" And I thought that's uh, you know pretty interesting name, and uh, about a year later, I was able to actually get in touch with him, and uh, that kind of started our relationship.
0: You can move from there. Well, and so when you decided to write this book, how, how much time did
3: you spend with Bobby yourself? Yeah, so... Um, you know, I went down to Tulsa about seven times or so over five years, and then uh, spoke to him at certain times, multiple times a week, uh, in another kind of period, would be maybe twice a month, but uh, within regular kind of multiple hour long phone conversations with him uh, over that five plus years as well. Well, you know, he's, he's definitely an interesting character and has had such a colorful life.
0: And I'm sure when you were doing the research and, and having your communications with, you know, Bobby, it was kind of just one interesting, you know, tidbit after another. What were some of the things that you discovered during the interviews that you were going, gosh, this is, I just can't believe this. This is amazing. Uh, you
3: know, that's kind of hard to answer because, you know, the, uh, the honest answer to that would be pretty much everything. I'm sure it's a really wild and uh, pretty astounding life. And, uh, a lot of it, especially the stuff when you get into the, kind of the prison system um, of Oklahoma during the fifties, is uh, vastly different than uh, what our conception of uh, kind of criminal justice and corrections is today. So, um, you know, it's kind of he's a man that's uh, jam packed uh, with with crazy stories, and uh, not only crazy, but they're told in a uh, in a light that's very uh, aware and emotional at the same time.
0: Well, it seemed like there was a lot of things going on that kind of converged all at once. I mean, we have the justice system. There's a, a lot of things this underworld and Tulsa that a, a lot of people didn't even understand that's going on as well.
3: Yeah, you know, I I think my idea with the book was as opposed to uh, just kind of telling only a traditional biography, it would be to also kind of explain the uh, cultural and social forces that formed Mr. Blue Jacket's life um, and also the way that he interacted with them. So uh, with that, throughout the book, he's moving through all these phases, and I try to provide uh, a lot of context there, so whether that's context on... uh, uh, assimilation campaign uh, against Native Americans in boarding schools or whether it's uh, the prison system or whether it's kind of the uh, cultural mores of uh, safe burglars in the 40s in Tulsa. Um, each one kind of has its own codes and context.
0: Well, and so I understand that Bobby, um, you know, he he actually was in jail a few
3: times and he started at the age of 12, right? That around there. Um, yeah, especially as a kid, you know, he's in and out of kind of a city jail. Of, you know, those wouldn't be uh, considered major sentences, but major cops stealing something and thrown in for a couple days, that sort of thing. But uh, by, by about 12, he was uh, uh, quite acquainted with uh, the Tulsa City and County Jail. And they probably knew him very well by that time as well. When he was
0: um, incarcerated for one of the longer stints, because I mean, we don't want to give too much of the book away, because I know people are going to want to get their own copy of Bobby Blue Jacket,
3: but why don't you share with us a little bit about one of his incarcerations? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think an interesting component is, uh, so he had been involved in this kind of teen rumble in 1948 um, where he ended up killing another boy. He was 18 at the time. I think the, the boy that died, if I'm remembering correctly, was 20 or 21. Um, and this was a sensational trial. Um, it happened two weeks after the killing. It was front page news of Tulsa newspapers every day leading up to and through the trial. Um, and what I believe was the wrong conviction he ended up getting in um, guilty first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 99 years of prison. So he essentially, at that point, believed his life was over. Um, he sent to Oklahoma State Penitentiary that same year in 1948. In 1949, transferred to another prison called Oklahoma State Reformatory. Um, and that's, of uh, in the middle of nowhere in a town called Granite, you know, also in Oklahoma. Um, and he arrived at Granite right at a time, um, there was a very transformative period, uh, in Oklahoma's prison system. Uh, leading up to his arrival, it had basically become this underfunded, uh, broken down, kind of, he just, Bluejack describes it as a, a dungeon-like atmosphere where, you know, you're beaten simply for kind of looking the wrong way. But when he arrived, uh, a new warden had just been uh, initiated, named Joe Harp. And uh, through Joe Harp, and also uh, the uh, commissioner at the time, uh, the reformatory got funded. Um, and all these new programs got put in place. Among these programs were a uh, new grade school and a accredited high school, which would eventually become uh, the first desegregated uh, prison high school uh, in the country. And a prison newspaper, of which Mr. Blue Jacket became editor, and as well as prison sports teams like uh, baseball and football. And so uh, Blue Jacket basically came of age throughout these programs and uh, they ended up equipping him with a bunch of different skills that he utilized throughout the rest. Of Life, particularly um, writing and speech making. So, well, and, and, and it sounds like he, you know,
0: we kind of talked about this a little bit too. He, you know, got his education in prison, which kind of
3: it seemed to just kind of forward things along. Yeah, and, you know, uh, he talks about it at length, which I quote him in the book, but uh, it really was the beginning of his maturation. um, And this kind of coalescing also with him meeting uh, several powerful men at the time, uh, journalists and kind of political figures, um, resulted in him ultimately getting paroled in 1957 and uh, given a chance to start his life over. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and start doing that. So, when he left prison, what were some of the things that he did to kind of get that life of was kind of back on
3: track? Uh, yeah. yeah. So when he gotten out, he um, had a lot of people looking out for him, which was uh, you know pretty crucial. And uh, he fell in with a guy named Clyde Swartout, mm-hmm. who had a used tire business. And uh, the used tire business is basically driving around, going to junkyards, uh, tire farms, garages, uh, finding old tires for cheap and reselling them for a uh, you know decent margin. And through this, she was able to build up kind of a self-sustaining business, uh, making legitimate money, and uh, was pretty successful. Um, at the same time, uh, kind of a. Uh, unconventional route, but he became involved in local politics by virtue of the fact that he knew all the law enforcement members from his time as a chief, um, and he was also now acquainted with state officials um, and such as pardon and parole uh, folks, as well as other kind of local politicians. He became kind of a, what I call an impresario, uh, staging uh, campaign events, doing valley um, you know, doing that sort of thing. So he, he really got re- reintegrated in the community. That
0: it, uh, it sounds like he was
3: able to kind of find his niche, something he was kind of looking for all along. Yeah, you know, I, don't, I think it's uh, it's hard for me to, to say that uh, with uh, certainty, but he certainly seemed to, uh, to fall in and uh, find success uh, pretty naturally. Yeah.
1: Well,
0: and I know in your book you talked, I mean, it's got such great, not only details direct glimpse to his life, but man, you've got these pictures, these historical pictures that are just um, of the city of Tulsa and, and different people as you went along. How difficult was it to get these pictures for this book?
3: Yeah, um, the ones, you know, a lot of them are from uh, Blue Jacket's own collection over the years. Of, you know, he has a little uh, kind of shoebox full of these um, going back to, you know, the 30s. Uh, some of the photos uh, were kindly granted use to me by the Tulsa World and other newspapers of the period, uh, like wire services, like UPI. Um, some of them, yeah, and also the Oklahoman granted me some photos. So, um, you know, it was a... It was a process to collect them. It was one of those things that either I knew exactly what I was looking for and hunted it down, or it was just a photo that I could have never thought existed that um, I either found by happen chance or, you know, uh, Mr. Bluejack and pulled it out from under a seat uh, where it's just an amazing photograph of, say, the uh, McAllister uh, baseball team, you know, hitting a home run in 1955. That's
0: pretty amazing. Yeah, it really gives you a deep insight to his life by just having those pictures the way they are in the book and um, it really makes it feel like you're making this personal connection and
3: I feel like if otherwise it wasn't there it might not have been as, as deep. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I'm not uh, necessarily someone that even uh, loves photographs and what is essentially a prose book, but I thought it was uh, pretty crucial for this project, both um, I think it helps because a lot of this is far off. I mean, a lot of people reading the book aren't necessarily super acquainted with, uh, you know, Tulsa, the city, or Oklahoma, the landscape. Um, but there's also the component that I think there's a lot of the stories in the book are almost too hard to believe at times, where uh, you got to see the photographs to really uh, confirm the this indeed happen at one point in
0: time. Well, and the time reference as well, because it's such a different era, and for some readers, you know, this might be unfamiliar to them, so having those photographs really kind of, you know, cements it.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it really uh, can kind of put you in the period um, in a way that would take, you know, hundreds more pages to uh, otherwise illustrate, so. Definitely. <laughs> For, sure.
0: <laughs> For sure. Well, and so you, you touched on this a little bit, you know, and I kind of want to go back to um, when he was in prison, because it was kind of a remarkable time. He, he was educated, he played on a baseball and football team, and I mean, all these, you know, he, he really kind of developed, it seems like, really into this uh, person that he is today, but... Also with the community that he was engaging in, not just there but you know bringing those skills outside as you talked about earlier. and a lot of them seem like they're almost like skills that one would acquire to you know just be part of a community as opposed to um, you know maybe someone that's, that's not really quite fitting in. Yeah, you know its a, there's
3: that dichotomy there where um, he definitely lives large portions of his life outside a kind of mainstream society. Um, but I think his uh, pursuit of, um, you know, those kind of subcultural elements, the criminal elements, really to one day put himself in a place where he was integrated in a kind of mainstream society. So there's that tension there. And as a personality, you know, he's very engaging, um, very kind of charismatic guy, uh, very uh, kind of connects with you, um, on a deep level, uh, even in just kind of for a like high low, you really feel like he's uh, emotionally present with you. Um, so all these kind of characteristics um, make you uh, a strong social person, a strong political person to begin with, and then so I think when he learned um, kind of the techniques of uh, oratory and of journalism and prison, uh, really uh, helped him even elevate his, uh, his persona uh, that much more so. Uh, it seems that it really gave him the avenue to kind of pursue the things that, you know, maybe he never knew he could be passionate about, like his activism. Yeah, absolutely, and, you know, that, that would come later in life, um, but he ultimately uh, uh, kind of rejoined his uh, tribe, the Eastern Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma, where, uh, you know, he works on um, anything from helping to fund uh, elderly housing. He does speeches. He's uh, kind of a famous eulogist for the tribe where, uh, you know, both write obituaries and also give speeches at graveside. Um, He became a poet later in life as well, so, um, yeah, it it was, uh, as he says, uh, you know, took 75 years to make, but um, his wife, by the time he kind of rejoined uh, with the Eastern Shawnee there, he had put full full use to the skills he had learned uh, early on in the penitentiary.
0: Well, and so what? And what was like some of the inspiration? And you may or may not know this, but what was some of the inspiration that um, had him reconnect with the tribe?
3: Yeah. Um, so he was um, born on Eastern Shawnee land in 1930, and um, basically was moved to Tulsa two weeks after his birth um, just due to kind of a familial strife going on between his father and his mother. And uh, so he did attend the Seneca Indian School um, several years after that, but pretty much by the time he was seven, he'd become disconnected on a day-to-day basis with uh, his tribe and any kind of traditions and culture, even, you know, the day-to-day politics. Um, but I think later on as he, he got resettled, he got out of the penitentiary the last time in 1993. Um, you know, I don't know what single moment set it off, but he uh, went back up to uh, Eastern Shawnee land and uh, presented himself to the tribe and uh, basically said, I'm here and uh, ready to help. And that began kind of a long career uh, as a tribal elder.
0: Wow. That's uh, such an impressive part coming kind of full circle to you know, some of his roots there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know a lot of his early experiences and. Uh, in uh, boarding schools are both horrifying and uh, and very impactful in their own right. So, I think he kind of saw it as a a full circle, um, kind of coming back to where he started. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And an opportunity to kind of
0: help with the, the new game knowledge and wisdom that he has from all his life experiences. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> you gotta love that. Well, so being the colorful character that he is, why you want to share with us one of your favorite stories about Bobby Blue Jacket? <laughs>
3: you know that's tough because uh, if I like one, the uh, you know the book would be uh, much shorter. But uh, I guess I'm just trying to think here. You know. I guess one interesting um, story about him that kind of maybe illustrates the the complexity of this person has to do with his role as a prison journalist. And, uh, you know, he was, this is again going back to that reform period I was talking about, early 50s. And uh, the warden had approached him saying, uh, we're starting a newspaper, we'd like you to be the editor. And uh, as he said, you know, I couldn't even make a book report at the time. But um, due to where he was at, he was still considered one of the most intellectual or kind of smart um, uh, inmates in the prison. And so he starts his paper and uh he, uh, starts a little column called Inmate of the Month, and this basically highlights uh, an inmate they pick out of the population who they think is a good guy. Uh, and so they run it, and two weeks later the guy they run the column for uh, is paroled. And so as he says, I noticed a pattern. And so, uh, you know, they've begun to run inmate of the month columns for guys that, you know, are legitimately good guys. But that's getting them out and getting them through And so, uh, you know, as he says, there's always a little chicanery you got to throw in there. But I think uh, with him, you know, he's a, he's a cunning guy. He's always very smart, and I think he's also someone that's uh, uh, looking out for, uh, for the fellows around him whenever he can
2: be.
0: Yeah, uh, he must have had a little kickback on that. Going, well, I should be the next inmate of the month. You know, I want to get out of here. <laughs> yeah,
3: and you know that's a that's a whole other conversation. But um, his his views on. Uh kind of how to deal with time in doing time I find uh, pretty interesting in the sense that uh, he really talked about his maturity coming when um, he realized that he wasn't going to be able to pay anyone off to get out, uh, he wasn't going to uh, be able to afford a fancy lawyer who was going to get him out, um, he, he had to really just sit and face his uh, his sentence and he um, you know, that's, that kind of uh, stoicism, I think, is something that runs throughout the book as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, and as someone matures, you know, it, it's got to be also something that's kind of a little bit of a scary thing when you look at that much time that one has to, you know, be in prison
3: for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if he had served out his soul sentence uh, without any reduction, he would still be in prison today, uh, which is pretty wild to think about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm Yeah, such, such a compelling story. Well, and so I know that you both are, you know, you're still in connection with Bobby. In fact, you guys um, recently did a book signing together.
3: Yeah, that's right. You know, I consider him one of my good friends at this point. Uh, We kind of talk just for fun uh, pretty much at least once a week and keep in touch. And, yeah, we just did a real nice event at uh, Magic City Books down in Tulsa. You know, it's a great bookshop in its own right. Um, But they put on a, you know, real hell of an event for us. And uh, Blue Jack himself got up and we were able to kind of talk about some of the experience of the book uh, from, you know, from himself and in the first person, so I think that was exciting to see for a lot of people.
0: It must have been very exciting for him, too. I mean, being from one journalist to another, you know, here you have this book that you've written on his life, and he gets to kind of share some of it at, at a book signing.
3: Oh, yeah, I think he was, uh, he was enjoying himself for sure, and, uh, you know, I'd say it was uh It was an experience uh, pretty unique uh, and different from the book in the sense that I think uh and the book is kind of tracking his life as it happens at the time. Uh, this was pretty interesting in the sense uh, Blue Jacket at uh, Magic City was really talking about overarching themes and kind of uh, his takeaways from uh, from a life lived. So, um, yeah, it was beautiful. Now, did he have any input
0: um, when you were writing the book, saying, you know, gosh, I, I think this story should be in or I don't think this one should be in? Was there that, you know, that kind of
3: communication going back and forth? No, not really. I mean, um, he was pretty hands off. Uh, as he said to I me mean, often these days, he's uh, blown away in terms of being surprised that it is uh, as big of a book um, as it turned out. Um, and really, the, the interviewing style is very unconventional. The book is based upon where... Um, it was, were not kind of formal, stiff interviews. Uh, it was usually either the two of us just kind of casually talking on the phone uh, or just like driving around Tulsa and kind of stream of consciousness talking about the past. So, um... I might have a few kind of touch points or a topic going into a conversation that I know I want to clear up or maybe I want to confirm a date or something like that. Um, but it was very kind of free-flowing and um, I think because of that the, the relationship was different than, um, say, him kind of micromanaging any given uh, story or something like that. He kind of doesn't sound like that would be his style anyway, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of a free spirit overall. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so what would you like the readers to take away from your book? What are some of the things that you'd like them
3: to kind of take away? Well, um, I don't like to dictate necessarily what people make of a book, but I guess I could say that, um, maybe talk about why I thought it was an interesting story to do, um, which really boils down to the fact of kind of... I think in uh, the way our kind of media and political discourse and a lot of the way we talk about history sometimes is in these kind of like abstract um, verticals of whether it's economic history or social history or something like that where um, to me, it really all boils down to uh, you know human beings and individual experience uh, in the midst of all these forces going on. So that's kind of how I looked at a, a blue jacket as this one man who can reflect all these disparate elements of the American experience. Um, so I think, in terms of what a reader could take away, again, that's going to be largely on them. But I think. Uh, Overall, I hope they can get across the kind of uh, the human element and in history and the lived experience. Well, so Michael, where
0: can people connect with you and learn more about? Um, the book Bobby Blue Jacket and also about the other work that you do?
3: Yeah, the best place would uh, probably be bobbybluejacket.com um, that's got a bunch of information on the book and you can pick up a copy through there as well. Um, so I would uh, I'd say start
0: there. <laughs> well, and then you have uh, a, another website for your other writings that you do. Oh yeah, my
3: previous books are on uh, michaelpdaily.com um, so that would be some to check out of some of the other uh, projects I've worked on as well. Yeah, so they're all listed there.
0: Well, you know, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today.
3: Hey, it was my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on here. Well, that's all the time
0: we have for today. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Mary And remember, make every moment count.
2: In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Mary Ann airs every Thursday, Friday, and Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Make sure to tune in and visit MomentsWithMarianne.com for more information.